Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Many Americans know little about the work of U.S. intelligence agencies, with most of their perceptions influenced by James Bond, Jason Bourne, and other spy-themed entertainment, according to Amy Zegart, intelligence expert at Stanford. And by Americans, Zegart doesn't just mean the students in her class, but also policymakers. In her new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, Ziegart says the lack of understanding of how intelligence agencies function has only added to the challenges they face as rapidly advancing technologies make the work of intelligence gathering and analysis even harder and national security threats even greater. Amy Ziegart, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. How vast is this knowledge gap among Americans when it comes to understanding the work of U.S. intelligence agencies. You did both formal and informal polling on this over the last decade or so. Yeah, you know, Mina, I started writing this book based on a classroom experience I had years ago at UCLA when I was a professor there. And I polled my students about what they understood about intelligence and what their spy-themed entertainment viewing habits were. And I found statistically significant correlations, right? So the more they watched spy-themed entertainment, the more they believed in aggressive counterterrorism techniques like waterboarding. And so then I did more national polling. And I found, for example, in the Snowden revelations, when Edward Snowden, former NSA contractor, revealed all sorts of classified intelligence programs, lots of controversy in the news. Most Americans had no idea what the National Security Agency did for a living. 75% or more actually got it wrong when I asked them questions about the mission of that agency. So I found a lot of data suggesting widespread public opinion uh, being influenced by spy-themed entertainment. But I also found that policymakers are influenced by Jack Bauer and Jason Bourne as well. So it's not just the sort of mass public opinion, but everyone from Supreme Court justices to members of the Senate Intelligence Committee asking questions and reasoning through policy problems based on fictional plot lines from the movies and TV. Wow. How did this get so bad? I mean, it some level, the CIA and other intelligence agencies, they've invested, right, in, in spytainment, as you call it. They have, and they sort of have a love-hate relationship with <laughs> with spy-themed entertainment. So if you go to the CIA headquarters and you go into the public affairs conference room, it's decorated with posters of spy-themed entertainment. So it is a, it is a, a love-hate relationship. But what I found, Mina, is that for most Americans, there's nowhere else to go. 
for information about our intelligence agencies. Intelligence agencies like to operate in secret. They need to be engaged more in the public discussion. Most universities, at least when I looked at the top 25 ranked by U.S. News, more of them offered courses on the history of rock and roll than on U.S. intelligence. So I joke that students have a better chance of learning about U2 the band rather than U2 the spy plane. So there aren't many alternatives to spy-themed entertainment. I think that's part of the problem. You talked about some of the misperceptions as a result of it, but what do you see as some of the biggest costs of this lack of understanding of how the intelligence community works? I think there are a couple of big costs, right? We, when you talk about intelligence agencies, they're secret agencies that are operating in a democracy. And in order to be both effective and accountable, people need to know about how they're supposed to work. Right? And if members of Congress aren't rewarded by voters for paying attention to intelligence, they won't pay attention to intelligence. So one of the things I found with congressional oversight of intelligence, for example, is that most members of Congress, not all, but most, don't pay much attention. Why? Because voters don't reward them for it. There aren't interest groups that are very strong, and there's no Iowa equivalent for intelligence. So members who represent Iowa have to care about agriculture policy because they won't get elected if they don't. But there's no Iowa geographic concentration of intelligence interests to make sure members of Congress pay attention. So that's one big area. But the second big consequence is that I think the public believes that our intelligence agencies are um, more far-reaching, uh, more powerful, uh, more nefarious than they actually are. And so this deep state thinking about intelligence agencies listening to your conversation with grandma is in part fueled by spy-themed entertainment. So you mean there is this idea that um, the intelligence agencies are, are very powerful, omnipotent even, and that anything that goes wrong must be orchestrated to a certain extent? Absolutely. And in fact, there's public opinion polling data showing that even a few years ago, a quarter of Americans believed that the 9-11 terrorist attacks were an inside job perpetrated with at least the support of the United States government. Of course, there's no evidence at all to suggest that that's, the, in fact, the case. But this conspiracy thinking is really taking root in a whole host of areas, including intelligence. And it's fueled in part by the plot lines suggesting that spy agencies can see everything, do everything, and are running rogue. We're talking with Amy Ziegart, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Professor of Political Science at Stanford. Her new book is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Curious what questions you have about U.S. intelligence and how it works, given the fact that, as Amy Ziegart is describing, there are widespread widespread misconceptions about how the agencies function. Also curious about which national security threats worry you the most. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Well, these misconceptions and their effects are also coming at a time, Amy Ziegart, when the job of gathering and analyzing intelligence is being challenged, as you have said, in ways never seen before. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as driving some of these challenges? 
I think in one word, Mina, the answer is technology. Hmm. So we think about new technologies affecting everything from the future of work to healthcare to geopolitics, and new technologies are affecting intelligence also. So I talk about in the book what I call the five mores. So if we think about things like the internet, artificial intelligence, commercial satellites, which there are now thousands of circling the planet, giving imagery to anyone who wants it. These technologies are creating five mores for intelligence. The first more is more threats that can that can threaten us through distance, like cyber attacks. The second is more speed. So intelligence has to move now at a much faster pace to inform policymakers. The speed of networks, not the speed of bureaucracy. The third more more data. We're drowning in data, and intelligence analysts are too, and that's driven by technology. The fourth more, more customers who need intelligence, like voters who need intelligence about foreign election interference, or tech leaders who need intelligence about cyber threats. That's new too. And then the fifth more for intelligence, more competitors. Today, you don't have to be a superpower to have a spy satellite. You don't have to be a government to collect and analyze intelligence. Anyone with a cell phone. And an internet connection can do it, and so that's a radically different world than what our agencies faced even ten years ago. Well, let's break down some of those mores. When you say more threats, what threats keep you up at night, or what changes to the threats really worry you, Amy Seagart? Well, when I think about external threats to the country, I have my list, and again, it's it's sort of what technology is driving. But I'll, I'll preface this by saying, what keeps me up at night isn't an any external threat to the United States; it's ourselves. You know, your last segment, you were talking about polarization of American society. Yeah, that's what keeps me up at night: the fragility of our democracy, the coarseness of our discourse, the polarization of our society. External threats we can handle if our internal country is united by a sense of purpose and a shared set of values. So that's really what keeps me up at night. But if we were looking at the foreign threat landscape, I look at where these technologies converge, and I think of four countries in particular. That we that that concern me, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. All four of those countries major cyber powers. All four of those countries either have or want nuclear weapons. All four pose old-fashioned territorial aggression in their neighborhoods against our partners and allies, and all of them want to disrupt the international order. So they're a different category of threats to me than other countries face that the United States is contending with. And when you're talking about the polarization of our nation, it's making me, of course, think a lot about Russian attempts to exploit that polarization. As you were saying, we are a big concern, but we wouldn't be so vulnerable if we weren't as divided as we are. But but can you talk a little bit about that shift that we have seen、uh, in the last five ten years? Sure. So what we're seeing, I think, and again, this is enabled by technology, is a deception revolution. So deception's always been a part of geopolitics, but it used to be that countries would deceive each other at the elite level. So think about World War II, our successful、uh, D-Day invasion. Was designed by deceiving the Germans into thinking we were landing somewhere else than we were. Right? It was an incredible operation. 
in the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev wanted to deceive the United States into thinking he wasn't building nuclear weapons installations in Cuba when he was. Well, now what's happening? Now, thanks to the Internet and social media, countries like Russia can deceive at scale. They can deceive the masses, not just the elites, and they can do it quickly and they can do it at a magnitude that we could never have imagined in the Cold War. And so our our free speech and our democracy makes us vulnerable to this kind of deception because our adversaries can influence our discourse because we allow them to. And that's one of the great strengths of our democracy. But it also makes us vulnerable to this mass scale deception. Well, we've got calls coming in and let me bring caller Fred into the conversation. Hi, Fred. Hi, how are you? Well, go right ahead. Great. So my question is, how does the United States decide which countries to share information with? Because it it seems to be like an ever-evolving geopolitical situation where, um, you know, decisions are not that easily made or can be reversed based on changing current events. So, I mean, how do they work through those situations? Fred, thanks. Well, Fred, it's a great question. And the United States has a very close intelligence partnership with a set of countries affectionately uh, known as the Five Eyes. So it's the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Very close intelligence partnerships and intelligence sharing. Now, the U.S. shares information with other intelligence services and vice versa, but to a different degree. The Five Eyes relationship is very special, and I think it's in some degrees it's it's growing closer over time because the value of information sharing has gone up so much. But with everyone else, it's a question of need to know, and it's context-dependent. Well, Fred, thanks for the question. I want to talk with you about the Another one of the mores that you mentioned, which is more data. And when you talked about how we are drowning in data, I think so many people can relate to that. But can you go into a little bit more detail about just how much the CIA now is dealing with massive amounts of data and the work of intelligence agencies in trying to make sense of this? Yeah, you know, it's it's almost hard to comprehend how fast data is growing on Earth. So just a couple of data points on data. (laughs) One is that there are more people today that have cell phones than running water in the world. Tells you how connected we all are. More than half the world is on the internet. The amount of data on Earth is doubling about every two years. So if you think about that for a minute from the beginning of time to now, there's an amount of data. And two years from now, that will double. So now you're an intelligence analyst and you're trying to make sense of the world, which involves in many ways collecting needles from haystacks, trying to divine insight from all of this information that's now available around the world. And now those haystacks that you're looking through are growing out of control, doubling every two years. It's just an incredible challenge. Now, that's that's the bad news. The good news is there are new technologies to help us sort through all that data, like uh, machine learning algorithms, for example. They don't solve the problem, but they can reduce the problem to, so that analysts can then spend their time, instead of matching patterns, uh, thinking about what are the motives of a, partic- of a particular foreign adversary, what, what explains the, the behavior that they might be seeing. 
Well, as it is more available, as cell phones are more available, as more people are contributing to the amount of data, uh, we are we do have tools, as you say, to try to uh, navigate and mine some of this. But I'm curious if you find that it's also a positive thing that more people have access to this, because you did note, for example, um, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, that online sleuths like really helped uh, law enforcement by mining images and videos and, and helping the agency identify the attackers. Right. So there is a there is a new world, which is sort of the wisdom of crowds. There's a downside, which is the wisdom of crowds can become the danger of mobs. But we've seen even in the most secretive area of geopolitics, which is nuclear weapons programs, that people outside of governments using just commercially available imagery and other openly available information can do a remarkable job tracking illicit nuclear activities. Like Google Earth and things like that. Exactly. And so if you think about just last summer, there was publicly reported the discovery of hundreds of Chinese nuclear missile silos. Those reports did not come from the intelligence agencies. They did not come from classified sources. They came from independent researchers, including some of my colleagues here at Stanford do this kind of work. But they came from independent researchers using unclassified sources, operating outside the government. So there's more help now. There are more people tracking these things and sharing information because when it's found with unclassified sources, it can be shared within the U.S. government and with people outside the U.S. government. And sometimes that can be a great benefit. Yes. Well, let me go to caller William in Belvedere. Hi, William. Thanks for waiting. Oh, very wrong. And I think she's very wrong. Uh, I see the intelligence, uh, I call it industry, because it's interest industry. Uh, as you know, Snowden uh, worked for a private contractor. And there's a whole bunch of private contractors involved. Uh, so I, when I hear something about, oh, there's weapons of mass destruction, or a Gulf of Tonkin, or we've got to invade uh, uh, whatever country, or Nicaragua's coming to get us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I say, Who's trying to make a buck on this? And usually find some sort of aspect of uh, American corporations of making a buck on it. And I generally dismiss it. I'd appreciate the guest perspective. So you're, you're concerned about the integrity of our intelligence institutions and what they're doing, William? Is that, is that what you mean? Sorry, the, the very beginning of your think, comment I'm got cut concerned. off slightly. I don't, I don't, I'm not concerned about it. I think they're lying. Because people are making a buck. It's not, it's not, to me, it isn't complicated. Uh, William, thanks. Amy Seacrest, let me get your reaction. I think what William is also tapping into is what I hear from a lot of people who feel like, you know, there have been some spectacular intelligence issues that have led to military actions and other things that could be driven by, as William is trying to suggest, motivations that are not ethical and so on. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that has affected the operations of intelligence? Sure. I mean, there's no question there have been major intelligence failures and recently intelligence failures. So you think about just in the past 20 years, the twin failures of 9-11 and Iraq WMD. No question. Those were massive intelligence failures. But there's a difference between saying there's a failure and our intelligence agencies got it wrong and saying that they were trying to make a buck and they were deliberately cooking the books. I've been doing research on the intelligence community, been very critical of the intelligence community for almost 30 years. 
And I can tell you from my research, what I find is that these agencies are working hard. They make mistakes. There are some real problems they need to fix, but they're not making mistakes because they seek to make a profit. They seek to, to serve the nation. And when they make a mistake, they take that seriously and they carry it with them for the rest of their lives. We're talking about the world of U.S. intelligence with Amy Ziegart. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how many Americans, even lawmakers, members of Congress, know little about how U.S. intelligence agencies work and even sometimes get it wrong. There are risks to these misunderstandings, especially as emerging technologies and other things are impacting these intelligence agencies in ways that are unprecedented. That's according to Amy Ziegart, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of political science at Stanford University. Her new book is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786. What are your questions or comments about how U.S. intelligence agencies work or what threats are you most concerned about that our intelligence agencies contend with? You can also post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. This listener writes, on this issue, the thing I am most interested in, and which I rarely if ever hear discussed in the U.S., is whether and how much U.S. intelligence agencies have and are using these same technologies to foment chaos, like cyber war, in the populations of our adversaries. How do we know that the U.S. isn't doing the same stuff to other countries that we charge them with doing? That's such a good question. And the short answer is we don't know because it's so highly classified. It's one of the challenges of doing research on the secret community from the outside. What we do know from what has been publicly known or made available is that United States Cyber Command, which is our command that's focused on offensive cyber operations, has become much more forward-leaning in the past few years. In fact, there's an unclassified strategy, and it's called Defend Forward. And the idea is that we can't just sit back and try to defend the perimeter. We actually have to create friction in adversary networks so that it's harder for them to steal intellectual property, to disable weapon systems and the like. And so we do know that that exists. But, you know, there's a lot that's shrouded in secrecy, some by necessity, some that's a lot that's overclassified. And the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, just recently talked about the dangers of overclassification, that mm. it's not a good thing for the United States. Um, so it's a it's a really important question. And I think part of the solution lies in having the government be more forthcoming, not about the specific sources and methods, but about what we are doing, how we think about, particularly in cyberspace, what the role of offensive cyber operations should be. What do you think, Amy Ziegard, of how the U.S. Um, handled releasing the fact that they have intelligence that the Russians were planning, like a fake video, essentially, as a pretext for war or an invasion of Ukraine? I think this is a really important development. This is, it's in essence, forewarning. 
using intelligence and intelligence agencies don't like to reveal their intelligence because when they do, their streams can be compromised, right? They might not be able to get that intelligence source again. But they did in this case. They revealed the Russian plans to have a pretext for invasion with this phony movie with actors and corpses. And so this is using declassification or public release of intelligence to warn the world about the nefarious activities that Putin is considering doing in the future. That's pretty new. And so what we're seeing is this sort of strategic use of opening information to the public as a way of preventing a military conflict from happening. Well, Chris tweets, I love this topic. Americans are seeing our domestic institutions in only one and two dimensions and even less for the foreign service. Also, our English only mentality stunts our understanding of a complicated world. And Doug writes, I find the need for a separate federal agency called the IEA, Internet Enforcement Agency, obvious, one that a person could forward the phishing emails and texts to. These people can be located if the effort is made. Is it time for this agency? So as you're talking about new things that we're seeing from our intelligence officials, what are your thoughts on how our intelligence agencies need to change? Well, this organizational piece that the comment refers to is so important. Are we organized for cyber defense and cyber offense? And the answer is not yet, right? So we're seeing a movement toward greater organization in the Biden administration. But we have, you know, 10 times more people protecting our national parks in the United States than we do the number of people working in the Department of Homeland Security's office for protecting our critical infrastructure from cyber attack. So when we think about what is the role of the government, well, we know in our in our neighborhood, if we have crime in the neighborhood, we call the police. And we know if there are tanks rolling down the streets, foreign tanks, we call the military. But who do we call if our data or our company or our university or our organizations are attacked in cyberspace? We're not well organized. That has partly to do with intelligence, but it also has to do with um, you know, homeland security and it has to do with defense. And so we're grappling with this new battleground and how the government should be organized and who has the responsibility to do what. Because right now in cyberspace, we're largely fending for ourselves. You've also talked about the importance of intelligence agencies engaging with open source information. Can you describe what you see as the necessary changes on that front? So open source, if we think about things that are publicly available, that anybody can get, intelligence agencies use open source information. They have for a long time. But secrets are still considered, you know, the, the, the dominant and most important part of that endeavor. And so there's a joke that one, I always think jokes tell you a lot about how people think. Uh, and there's a joke in the intelligence community that one officer told me that, you know, we, he said, we think in the intelligence community that if a piece of information cost a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars. Well, that's not true today. Right. So we know when the Russians invaded Ukraine the last time, the best intelligence did not come from secrets. It came from selfies, photographs that Russian soldiers took and posted on social media for their family and friends. So our intelligence agencies work a work actually significantly with open source intelligence, but there's no organization dedicated to open source intelligence. And there needs to be. Let me go to caller Paul in San Bruno. Hi, Paul. 
Hello. Hi, what's on your mind? Okay, um, back in the 80s, I worked for a government contractor uh, on technology to spy on the bad guys, other countries. And um, at one point, I realized that uh, the government was using some of that same technology uh, possibly and uh, to spy on American citizens. And it was a shock at the time, but uh, since then I realized that it can be legal to do that. Can you, can you say more about uh, how, when it is legal for uh, spy agencies to uh, listen in on uh, Americans and uh, what uh, citizens need to know about that. Mm. Paul, thanks. Sure. So this has changed pretty significantly over time. So there have been abuses in the past, especially in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. It came to light in the 1970s that a number of government intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, and the National Security Agency, were illegally spying on Americans in a massive way. This was a very dark chapter of intelligence abuse and excess in violation of American civil liberties, no question about it. And as a result of that dark period, there was a new oversight regime put in place. So the House and Senate created permanent intelligence committees. Uh, over time, there was what listeners, I'm sure, uh, know about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So oversight now is much better than it was in decades past. In general, it's fair to say that U.S. intelligence agencies train their collection overseas. The FBI is the only member of the intelligence community, there are 18 agencies, that has explicit authority to conduct domestic intelligence surveillance, right? And they have to do that with all sorts of rules and regulations to make sure our constitutional rights are protected. So after 9-11, you might recall, there were a lot of new surveillance programs that came to light in part by Edward Snowden. Those were overseen by the executive branch. They were overseen by members of Congress and the intelligence committees, and they were overseen by the legislative branch. Now, Americans may not have liked them, and in some cases, those programs were reformed or ended uh, when they became publicly known. So that's how it works in a democracy. And the, I think the important point here is the U.S. compared to other countries spying on our own citizens is illegal. It's not only ill-advised and wrong, it's illegal. That's not the case in Beijing, and it's not the case in Moscow. Well, let me thank Paul for the question and go next to Brian in Novato. Hi, Brian. Hi. Um, I have a question about, I guess, how to bridge the, the, the past and kind of the current climate where the current climate people seem to be gravitating towards, you know, simpler and simpler um, kind of understandings of things in a more complicated world. And, but if you take like the history of the CIA's um, operations in Guatemala and, you know, um, places where they've overthrown governments clandestinely and those sort of things, a lot of young people, I think, today look at, at those kind of patterns and say, this should be removed. They look at Snowden stuff and they say, we just need to get rid of these agencies. And of course, that's idealistic, simple and unrealistic. And I just wonder, like, what's a good way to talk to them about that? Thanks, Brian. Brian, I wish you were helping me teach my course at Stanford in the spring. <laughs> this is exactly the question that I'm grappling with, which is how do we educate the next generation about 
democratic values, but also about the real threats in the world? And how do we find the common ground so that we have protections of important things like civil liberties, but we understand that the world is a dangerous place? Right. And so I think it is an education function. I think it's something we have to do every day in our homes. And it's what we university professors have to do on campus and not just telling students how to think or what to think, but challenge about how they think, what questions they ask and how they reason themselves, giving them opposing points of view. So, for example, in my class, I don't just assign things that I write. I also assign things uh, by people who disagree with me. And I think that's crucially important so that our young people learn to challenge their own assumptions and think for themselves. And what do you think are the responsibilities of the intelligence community in terms of generating greater trust from young skeptics, as I guess Brian was describing here? Well, I think they need to get out of a reflexive, secretive nature. So I share in the book an example of I invited some analysts from the CIA to come and do a simulation for my course years ago. And they came. They did a great job. And they came with someone from public affairs. This was an outreach effort, right, to try to demystify what the Central Intelligence Agency does. And the public affairs person who came to my class would not tell me his last name and would not give me his business card. Now, that's just, it's just silly. So a lot of it is being more open about what people do inside the intelligence community, what life is like, and being more open about declassifying more information. So a lot of information is classified that should not be classified. Uh, And we need to get out of that reflexive secrecy mindset because the public is getting information about intelligence and national security threats from all sorts of other places. And the intelligence community, if they hide even the basic things that they shouldn't, it fuels distrust about, well, what more could they be hiding that they shouldn't be hiding? We're talking with Stanford scholar Amy Zegard about the U.S. intelligence community, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, and when you mention getting a people, giving people a sense of what what it's really like to work in the agency on a day to day basis, Lois writes here: It's important to recall to recall that spy fiction was the catalyst for modern British national espionage institutions, and the U.S. model its very apparatus on the British intelligence model. The Thirty Nine Steps were incredibly influential in establishing British agencies such as MI Five. This is an instance, as Oscar Wilde observed, of life imitating art, such as it is. So it's no surprise that fiction will still fuels our understanding of how intelligence agencies operate. I'm so struck reading Lois's comment and a juxtaposition that you you have in your book of what entering the CIA is like. Exactly. This is a life imitating art, is art imitating life moment. So I, I relate in the book how if you go to the CIA, you know, you think it's going to be something right out of the movies. And it actually doesn't look like that at all. It has more of a shabby post office feel. And there are no fancy retina scans as you walk in. It's more of a you know nice security person who takes your phone and hands you a paper claim check. But then if you go to the National Counterterrorism Center, it's a very different story. It was created after 9-11, and it was created in part by a team of Disney engineers to make it look like those cool high-tech operations centers like you see on TV and in the movies. So it is an example of uh, life imitating art, imitating life. Let me go to Alex in Palo Alto. Hi, Alex. Hi. Um, yeah, I uh, I work in the security industry. Actually, I've been in the industry for quite some time. Work for one of the big uh, big five consulting firms. I um, just wanted to make a comment on uh, something that you just said about how 
the agencies, I mean, and by the way, I work with some of those agencies, that the agencies um, actually do not spy on Americans. Um, I mean, and because it's not legal, and just because it's not legal doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Uh, particularly, I wanted you to maybe comment on um, some of the software that's being used by either countries or even individuals to spy on um, journalists, like the Pegasus uh, software that's being used. Um, what people should know about that, I'm, I'm sure there are some kind of measures, you know, to combat, you know, you know, using or try to, trying to evade some of those um, software. Hmm. Alex, thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So big story about the NSO group, an Israeli company that has been uh, selling spyware called Pegasus to uh, countries uh, around the world uh, in close coordination, according to the report in The New York Times with the Israeli government. So this isn't a company just operating on its own. It's done. It's doing its business in close coordination with the Israeli government. And in that story, great reporting, uh, there's discussion about how the FBI was experimenting with and testing this spyware and whether it could be used, and I and I hasten to add this, with legal protections, right? So it's not willy-nilly spying, but nevertheless, disturbing evidence that the FBI was testing whether it should use a version of this spyware in the United States. So um, absolutely right to be concerned about these kinds of things. The sort of What's buried in the story is that the FBI decided not to use that spyware in the United States. So uh, you can take comfort from that or you can be disturbed that it got anywhere at all. Um, but this is the reality now of the uh, electro or the technical battleground that you have companies that have spies for hire and capabilities for hire. And they sell these capabilities to uh, governments and other actors that may use them to target journalists and dissidents and others. And you also have governments who can uh, get what they want in the sort of open marketplace. And so the idea that governments can control the espionage activities of uh, others around the world and can control information and how it's analyzed is a thing of the past. This is a much more complicated private public sector uh, world. And we're feeling our way through it in terms of is this a good thing or a bad thing when companies are are so closely tied with a government, including an ally like Israel, and selling spyware to others around the world, which may not share our interests of the United States and may not share our values. We have less than a minute. But one thing that I was struck by in reading your book is that you, while you lay everything out very clearly and... And it's it's great to be able to see it laid out in that way. One can't help but feel incredibly overwhelmed at the same time at the convergence of all the things that you're describing and all the threats that it poses. And I guess I, I'm wondering what what we can do or 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 how you how you think through that, <laughs> knowing what you know. Well, we do live in a in a world of increasing complexity and it's increasing velocity. Things feel like they're moving really fast. And there's increasing anxiety. And so I think we each have to do what we can to make the world a better place, whether it's in our local communities or whether it's teaching a new class on the intelligence community for the bright minds of tomorrow. Everybody can do something to, to improve how we, how we deal with this challenging uh, threat environment. Intelligence expert Amy Ziegart. Her book is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks, listeners. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.